In the spirit of reconciliation, Siren Sport acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Siren Sport podcast. I'm co-founder Casey Simons and I'm joined by a very special guest today which I'm so excited about because some of you will know that I do work in the academic space and I do like to get some of my academic colleagues on the podcast every now and then who are heroes of mine who I just want to pick their brains and share the amazing work that they do with you, our Siren audience. So This week, we have the wonderful Dr. Rebecca Olive joining us. Rebecca recently started as a Vice Chancellor's Senior Research Fellow in the School of Global Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University. Her work centres on the cultural politics of recreational sport and leisure with a focus on action and lifestyle sports with special attention on something she loves very much, surfing. Historically, Rebecca has also looked at women's participation and the gender politics of action and lifestyle sport, but her recent work, which is funded by the ARC, so the Australian Research Council, is all about how sports and leisure shape our relationships to coastal and ocean ecologies. Rebecca is widely published across many disciplines and co-edited the book Women in Action Sport Cultures. She also writes for Surf Media, and you can read more about her work at movingoceans.com, and we'll get stuck into that a little bit more in our chat but welcome Rebecca thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to have a chat with us oh no thank you so much for having me I'm stoked <laughs> oh I'm so stoked I mean I remember meeting you at a conference um when I was a little baby PhD student and you were so amazing and just supportive of what I was doing I was such a nervous wreck at that conference presenting my work for sort of maybe only the second or third time. I still hadn't really figured out the space or didn't know many people. And I wasn't really sure where my research really sat or if I was doing it right and all that imposter syndrome stuff that, you know, probably never really goes away. But you were incredible and so supportive of my approach and and how I was going about things. And I've just always been such a fan of your work and followed your career. So now that I can sit and talk to you on a podcast is blowing my mind. (laughs) No, well, your work was so amazing. I remember that presentation and it was excellent and I was so impressed. So I'm so excited that I can be here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll just get the love fest out of the way, I suppose. This is what I do with all my guests. So the Siren audience will be probably very used to me doing this, just gushing over everyone that I get to talk to. So maybe I should move on because they're probably tired of it. But I guess with um, the podcast that I get to do with my academic colleagues, I'm so passionate about just sharing the work that some amazing women are doing in the sports research space. One, because I think it's part of the broader women in sport conversation. Sports research is definitely a part of that. And there are so many women doing amazing things and sort of experiencing similar challenges that a lot of women experience in the women in sport movement, conversation, space, whatever we want to call it. But also, I just want to highlight some cool stuff that people are doing that might not get so that mainstream attention that you know, newspapers pick up or sort of comes across in that, I guess, easily accessible way. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sharing stories for maybe those who might be interested in doing something a bit academic, like doing an honours or a master's or going back and doing a TAFE course or anything and just trying to think of different ways that I guess sports, what sports academia can be. Like it's not just one thing. I know the research work that I'm doing is something I could never have imagined doing when I sort of started my studying. Um, and I think we don't talk about enough 
we don't talk enough about the diversity of um, scholarship, I suppose, that's out there. So there's a few things I want to unpack with you today. But first, maybe do you want to just tell me a little bit about your academic journey and how did you find your way into the space? Okay, so yeah, well, I sort of started a degree a few years after school, like I think five or six years after school, and I'd been living overseas and just working and being a nanny and being a receptionist and working in call centers or whatever. And my mum just said, I just think you'd really like uni. Like, I think you'd just really like studying. And so um, originally I'd kind of wanted to, like so many young people, study marine science. And then while I was away, someone had said to me, you don't, you don't want to count fish, you like people. And so I ended up doing an arts degree. <laughs> and um, my majors are in international relations and social anthropology, actually. And then um, I sort of thought about doing honours, but at the end of it, I was just, I don't know, you know, you finish uni and then you kind of, yeah. So I travelled <laughs> a bit more and then I just moved home. I'm from Byron Bay and I was making a lot of pizza and surfing a lot <laughs> amazing <laughs> and and then I had an idea to go and do honors so I contacted the local university a regional university Southern Cross and I discovered cultural studies through that experience and did my honors there it was awesome about surfing and so I'd found this space that brought anthropology and international relations together for me which was cultural studies and cultural studies is a study of everyday the meaning of everyday practices in people's lives um, and so I was like super interested in that and and then I did that and then I ended up doing a PhD and that took me to UQ where I was in the School of Human Movement and Nutrition Sciences. And that's where I got into a feminist version of cultural studies as well, because I was looking at women surfing and thinking deeply about gender politics. So feminism and cultural studies really came together for me during that time, but that really shaped, that was a real turning point for me in terms of how I did academia, because both feminism and cultural studies in my reading of them have an activist, like a political imperative. And so for me to claim that I was doing feminist work required me to do something meaningful for the community I was researching. And because I'm studying culture, I wasn't studying structures. I wasn't studying media. I was thinking about media representation and the effects of that, but I wasn't, you know, studying media itself. It's like, how do you impact culture? <laughs> like, mm. how do you... So that took a lot of thinking through and that's when I got into blogging and through blogging, I got invited to write for some like collaborative um, surf magazines that some people were making. And through that, I got invited to write for mainstream surf media and through that, then I got invited to, you know, speak at festivals and through that I got invited to talk on the ABC. And so it kind of like it accumulated over time. It wasn't like it wasn't planned. I couldn't have imagined that. And that's something I would say about studying. Like I couldn't have imagined the opportunities that are opened up in my life. And so that's why I'm quite passionate about higher education. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for that reason, it changed my life in fundamental ways because it gave me the opportunity to think and ask questions and find frameworks in which to do that meaningful frameworks and to be questioned in return. And that's what social theory, you know, does. It asks you questions. Um, but just the the people that I've met, you know, present company, of course, included, <laughs> and and the the ways that it pushed me to think about what scholarship can be outside of an academic context. So that's kind of how that happened. And then got a postdoc and got a grant and now here I am. <laughs> that's yeah. so amazing. I love hearing you talk about your journey, Beth, because I feel like it's quite similar to my own. Like I didn't really know 
what I really wanted to do when I started studying, but I just liked studying and I liked finding out things. And I just kind of, you know, continued the journey. Like even with my PhD, I didn't really know what I was going to do beyond that. I just thought I really want to do this thing. And I'll forever be grateful for that experience. I know a PhD is not for everyone, um, but it is a real privilege to do it and a real luxury to be given that space to, to think critically about different things. And I know I learned so much about myself and some of the um, sort of spaces that I was occupying and my own identity in those spaces that I'll be so grateful for because now I think, like you mentioned, they gave me the opportunities to find ways that I could try to, I guess, service the community I wanted to be part of, what my role could be to try and make that space better for other people. And that's kind of outside of, I guess, of the actual thesis that I did. Like I produced this thesis and that's really meaningful and I'm so proud of it. But those other things that came alongside mm. of it and those learnings and things that I was able to action, I mean, it's, yeah, really shaped, I think, yeah, who I, I am today. Well, I think as well, that's the thing, like academia, we talk about it as producing knowledge, right? But mm. I don't think that's all that it is. I actually think academia is an activist practice. Like, I don't know anyone here who just doesn't care about what their knowledge produces or the effect it has on people's lives. Like, I don't know anyone who feels that way in the sciences, the social sciences, the humanities. Everyone cares about the effect of their research in the world. So, you know, that's, I, I always find that really wonderful and inspiring. I mean, yeah, it can be nice. <laughs> It can be nice. Like there's definitely a lot of hard work that goes into that. And um, it can be a bit stressful. Um, Yeah, I just reflect back on some of the, you know, different projects and and the PhD itself. Like it's a lot and I get why people don't want to do it and it's not for them. But yeah, if you, I feel like I kind of went into it thinking, I just want to give it a go. And I had this idea. And I think if you're passionate about something and yeah, you want to make that kind of impact, then it is a really amazing thing to do. And it's not just for one type of person, like you can bring any idea and any sort of problem that you see in the world. And there are ways that you can contribute to that. And I think that's kind of the, I don't know, not like I don't think it's an assumption with a PhD that it has to be one thing, but maybe it is for some people that it just has to be a really long, boring, 100,000 word thesis about something. But you really do have the space to bring yourself into it and be really creative um, and and find those frameworks. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, like you said, it's definitely not for everyone. And it's not just, it is about being passionate about the topic. And that's what I, I wasn't doing a PhD to be an academic. That sort of happened despite myself, but I did it because I deeply believed in the project. And, Mm. but I remember when I started, my advisor, Murray Phillips, who's a sport historian, said to me, the one thing that will get you through this is determination. Like, that's it. He goes, everyone's smart and, you know, everyone's get, everyone can do this stuff. But the thing that will get you to cross the line is the absolute determination that you'll get this done. Because in the end, the passion burns out, I think, to the end. (laughs) And you're just like, oh, get this finished. So you have to be, you have a weird stubbornness, I think, Mm -hmm. about finishing this this process and this project and like really being committed to that from the start and I knew from the start that I was up for it I never questioned that the whole way through I know other people do but it was really helpful that he asked me that question early on because or made that point early on um, because I understood that passion wasn't it wasn't only passion that would get me through in the in those last months (laughs) Mm, so true and I kind of get the sense from you that you know, maybe your passion might have like 
burnt out towards the end where you just wanted to get that done but I feel like your passion is just continues to carry you through because you've like taken that passion into some pretty amazing big projects and one that you're currently working on which I wonder um, we might have to sort of talk through a little bit to our audience to understand uh, what a decorate is I mean I'm still trying to get my head around and I'm in this space too um, but you were awarded a decorate which is a discovery early career research um, award they are so competitive. These are one of the most competitive Australian Research Council grants. So first of all, much belated congratulations for being <laughs> awarded one. It is absolutely amazing, Rebecca. <laughs> My gosh. I mean, the work that you need to do just to put in an application, then to get it through to be competitive, to be assessed is like an achievement enough and then to be awarded one is just fantastic so just big round of applause um audience who are not in academia just trust me it is a big deal <laughs> yeah so yeah it is it is a big, maybe I'm still in recovery from running that actually, even <laughs> from though it's finished now like it's a three-year so what it is it's a three-year it's three years of funding so it's a salary and research funding to to pay for your research pro project and that allows you to focus just on a project because an academic job is not just research. And if you study, maybe you think that your lecturer is just to teach is just teaching as their job, but actually it's composed of, you know, multiple parts, which is researching and producing knowledge out of the research and other outputs, as we've already hinted at teaching, which is sharing knowledge with students and, and helping them discover the tools for their own lives to critically think or the, the skills that they, they're trying to learn. So that's a component of the job that they sit alongside each other and impact each other a lot. And the third one is that we help run the university <laughs> and make decisions about what the university does in, in different ways. So there's those three components to the job. And what that kind of fellowship allowed me to do is just focus on mainly one component of our job. Mm which is a gift, you know, it's like you said before that a PhD is a gift and it is to have the opportunity to just think in depth about one topic without too much distraction other than the rest of your life. <laughs> but <laughs> that's what a fellowship allows. And in the case of the government funding research, it means that the government has recognised that this work is deserving of funding and that is deserving of intense scrutiny, That is mm -hmm. that it will be a benefit to you know, other Australians. Um, so it's pretty like, I feel really weird even saying that's like, yeah, because I, <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's weird talking about, but um, mm. yeah, it's, I'm still like, yeah, I think I'm still processing. It only just finished. So I've finished the three years of funding and now I'm in this new fellowship at RMIT, which is another amazing opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was, yeah, I still pinch myself that the project was seen to be of such value and that sport and leisure and you know and and how it shapes relationships to nature was seen as so important by you know a pretty brutal gov like the fact that a conservative government funded that still is pretty amazing to me mm. yeah absolutely and I mean as I said just even applying and trying to get over the line there are so many hurdles I'm sure you went through that I can't oh, even imagine like no it's not it's like it's not for the faint-hearted it really is a, <laughs> it's very difficult anyone who puts in an application has it's a big achievement just submitting an application actually mm -hmm. for any of the ARC funding the Australian Research Council is just one of the most tough application processes around like yes it's not 
which is <laughs> yeah and I mean like you said it's just testament to the work that you identified that needed to be done and that that was a focus so that's just incredible um can you talk to us a little bit about that project I mean I kind of equate it as you almost did like another PhD really like it but probably a lot more work lot more expectations um so, <laughs> it's got a really boring title which is understanding ecological sensibilities in recreational lifestyle sports <laughs> and I've renamed it moving oceans <laughs> beautiful it's, yeah it's thinking about the role of sport and leisure in how we take care of coasts and oceans and so a lot, if you surf or swim or paddle or sail or spend any time on the beach walk, like all those things, then this project's probably pretty sort of intuitive to you in that spending time around these spaces, we get a lot from it in our health and, and we want to take care of those places usually. So the framework around that is called human ocean health and well-being. And when we think about forests, it's human environmental health and well-being so I'm just focused on have been focused on coasts and oceans so I ended up focusing mainly on ocean swimming actually as quite an accessible practice and ocean swimming can be anything from marathons to cold water dipping which is very popular here in Port Phillip Bay in Melbourne um yeah and I tended to look at people who swim either daily or weekly up to about one and a half kilometers so I traveled I sort of COVID obviously has put a kibosh on a lot of the fieldwork, made it very difficult to do the project, but I ended up getting to do a bunch of fieldwork and went swimming with a lot of people because sport and leisure is something we do. It's not just an idea. So it's not, you can't just think this stuff through. You actually have to do it and understand what it feels like, what it smells like. Um, and for me, the main things I've been interested in are experiences of encounter. And we have those in sport all the time. So the encounters with animals, um, with pollution, with um, the colonial history of the places that we might swim or, you know, play footy <laughs> might be, mm -hmm. you know, we can apply that in different ways um, and how that makes us vulnerable and how it makes us feel um think carefully about our place in ecologies and, and in the case of swimming in obvious ways in the part of food chains. <laughs> so in that way, it helps us feel how our future is tied up in the future of the health of the places that we like to spend time in. So that's sort of it in a nutshell. <laughs> Yeah, amazing. And I mean, this is why I love talking to other researchers in this space, because there are just so many different projects out there that take different um, experiences in sport from different uh, lenses and disciplines and approaches. And it's so nice to talk about those things. Um, and maybe just selfishly, because I just want to hear about them in my capacity as a researcher, but I'm sure they're really interesting to our audience, because again, I think we just don't talk about this kind of research um, sort of more broadly, and it's so fascinating, and it is, you know, driving impact and change, um, and like you said earlier, that, you know, this has become a focus for the Australian Research Council to fund this kind of work, um, particularly when it comes to, I guess, just experiencing the world we have in Australia and the land and those intersections with how we use the land for yeah, sport, and and leisure. sport and leisure. It's a huge part of it. And it's easy to overlook it because we can sort of downplay or a lot of people can look down their nose at sport and, you know, sport practices and, um, 
certainly that can happen in some academic circles is people don't like the idea of studying sport, but it is the main way that people engage with oceans. Like physical activity and sport and leisure practices are the main way. The reason that we have shark nets is because, you know, ridiculous shark nets is that people want to feel safe when they surf and swim. If we're staying on land, we don't need shark nets. So Mm -hmm. like it is the sporting practice that has like brought those nets into being essentially you know it is the fact that we want to spend time on a beach that will mean that someone puts accessible you know um, pathways down for different kinds of people to be able to get to the sand or not so it's the fact that people use those spaces for physical activity and sport and and leisure practices that that they become you know there's infrastructure in place in in different ways yeah Mm. I want to talk to you a little bit about I guess where this research goes, because I'm sure you've compiled many reports and you're writing papers and something that I think I'm really passionate about, which I know you are too, is sort of, I guess, disseminating information and and getting it out there for everyone and making it really accessible, which is kind of what I want to talk to you a lot about, because you're also very, very creative, which is what I love, because I love things to be creative and doing things differently and really just like kind of leading into the art side of the social sciences, which I know like you've got that background a little bit and that is a big strength of yours, I think. But what have you done from this project to get this stuff out there? And can you talk about the ways that you sort of, yeah, disseminated the research through different mediums? Hmm. So I talked a bit before about how I started to think about what does it mean to be activist as an academic and how do you make a meaningful contribution back to the people that you're working with or that in your works about and so that was definitely underpinning that underpins everything I do because this project is still feminist and so that is still an absolute requirement upon me now when you're funded by the government it's an additional requirement upon you (laughs) because (laughs) it's it's got to feedback you've got to show how this feeds back so it was in the project design from the beginning that I would have a website where I would be able to share things information from the project and and post different things and outline the project and promote different people's work and put make sure my publications were accessible through that so that's the moving oceans website is is that it's like an aggregate of the whole project and the designer made it so beautiful Mm -hmm. it is beautiful oh it's so amazing and she made me feel really proud actually because she was using my fieldwork photos on there so I didn't even think of that until she did that. And then, yeah, that was really nice. So, yeah, so I have all like field notes and and photos and wanted to share those. Probably something I'll just quickly mention as well is um, learning to write in a way that translates so Mm. you know we would we talk about we have to write these journal articles and book chapters and things and I to understand them for me I think of them as a genre so a journal article is a genre to a certain kind of audience communicating certain kinds of information and that not all that information is going to be relevant to women who surf for example so do they care so much about the ethics of my methodology maybe they care about it if they're going to participate but they don't care about it as part of their practice Um, they don't necessarily care about the literature review they don't necessarily care about looking in depth at the theory now that's just because that's how that's how I've come to get to where I am with the project. 
So when I write a blog, when I'm writing to surfers, what I'm trying to do is not write from my head. I try and write from my body because I want them to feel what I'm trying to talk about. I want them to feel the issues that I'm talking about. And theory is something because all the theories, and I think you use the same sorts of things, Casey, are about embodiment. They're about bodies. They're about experiences and feelings. So when I write a blog post or, or make another thing, all of that stuff is in there. It's just been reorganized into a new genre, the way that someone might translate a, a novel into a film or a screenplay. So they just have to shift a little bit to be appropriate for the audience that you're trying to reach. So I've developed a way of writing from my body that helps me write blog posts and, and into mainstream spaces a bit bit better so I do that and I really enjoy that I love writing I'm a writer you know not everyone in academia is a writer um so I really enjoy that bit of it and mm -hmm. um I tend to write mainly in prose I write a few poems here and there <laughs> um and then the other thing I wanted to do because before I started my around when I was doing my honors I think I had a community radio show actually <laughs> in Byron and had it for four years and it was Wednesdays and it was interview based. So it was interviewing politicians and filmmakers and like all different people and talking about current affairs. And so I had this kind of background to the way I understood broadcasting a bit and I was really comfortable with it. And so, you know, and podcasting is really popular. And I was thinking about things that like, I'm not comfortable making film. That's not in my repertoire. So, but audio stuff is, so yeah, I decided to make a podcast and plan that out to be able to share interviews with the people I was meeting along the way so that's kind of still it's on a little hiatus at the moment um because I've just moved to Melbourne and it's all a bit difficult to, to finish it up but I've got this amazing producer Hannah Reardon Smith um who's based up in in Queensland and she's so amazing and so she does the production side and wrote the theme music and everything and and I interview people um because I get so much out of those conversations. I learn so much. And so it's really nice to be able to share that. And all those different people have different bits of advice to give on how participating in physical activities can shape our relationships and how it can benefit coasts. Like us spending time there can be really good for it. So there's some of the main things I've done, I think. Are they the main things? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, the podcast, um, so Saltwater Library is Saltwater an Library. amazing podcast. Um, <laughs> I just recommend anyone who's looking for something for, you know, a long walk just to listen to because it's your voice on the podcast is so soothing, Beck. You have a beautiful voice for radio and podcasting. I'm very jealous for someone who's got you know, a very high-pitched voice, like sound like a 12-year-old child sometimes. Um, but I loved listening to that podcast. It was the sound effects and the water that come in and how it's produced is so beautiful. It's I learned so much, just things I just never even thought about when it comes to waterways and spaces and, yeah, being in your own body in those spaces. It was, um, you know... You obviously highlight some of the issues and things we need to think about more critically, but it's just such a relaxing listen. It's oh. so beautiful and thoughtful. <laughs> and I mean, your approach is so reflective. Like you, I think you just really encourage reflection. So that podcast, um, if that's if that's your jam, I 100% recommend it. It is beautiful listening. Oh, Casey, it's so kind. Thank you. <laughs> You're so welcome. Thank you for creating it. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you, I guess, a little bit about like what what you're doing now. What's what's on the um the agenda now that you've moved to Melbourne and you started this new position? What projects do you have on the go? Yeah, so here in um, Melbourne, I'm going to 
basically extend like anything I do is always an extension of what I've been doing so you know it started with feminist work in sport and then it brought in queer theory to bring sexuality into that and then it started thinking a lot more about decolonial theory or anti-colonial theory and critical race theory so each time it's like what am I missing here what am I missing and this project's going to bring in ecofeminism and now in Melbourne at RMIT has such a focus on urban living so it's going to be about swimming in urban spaces so I'm going to sort of think about the coast in a more dynamic way and include estuaries and creeks because as we know, all creeks, all drains lead to the sea. <laughs> so it's sort of thinking about that as in, those as interconnected spaces. Um, so yeah, starting to think about that. And in that way, it's it's not thinking about clean, clear, delightful swimming spaces all the time. Sometimes it's thinking about those spaces that are quite murky, you know, murky mm. and that might be quite unattractive to people on the surface, but which are loved and adored because they bring so much to people's lives. And that means that we have to think about, and I'm thinking of another sports studies scholar here, Clifton Evers' work on polluted leisure. He does a lot of work about, you know, he thinks about how our light, our sporting and leisure lives now involve pollution in a way that's unavoidable. So he's looked at things like oil and he's looking at concrete and thought about radioactive spaces like in Japan, surfing in Japan. Um, and I'm thinking a lot about like plastics and chemicals in the in the spaces where we swim. So thinking about how we just navigate that because we increasingly have to because sport requires these different forms of consumption, you know. But in return, it's also about we leave things behind. So if I put on sunscreen and go swimming, I'm going to leave that behind in the water or we might pee out antibiotics or we might shed microplastics from our swimmers. So, you know, it's never about just focusing on some kind of false sense of purity by spending time in nature spaces. It's actually about embracing them for what they are and finding ways to navigate it realistically. So that's kind of what I'm going to look at here. <laughs> yeah, this but I, so I, don't know Melbourne. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> Melbourne very well. So hoping to try and do some swimming like workshops or something that I'm trying to scheme oh, up. Cool. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Which will help well, me yeah. think about the water places here better and and try and share some of the information that I've been collecting through my work with with other people as well. Yeah, fantastic. Um I heard you speak at um a conference in June in Geelong, um, which is a history conference, and you were the keynote speaker for the um, Australian Historical Society stream of that, um, sorry, Historical Sports Society stream of that. And when you mentioned this idea of what we leave behind in these spaces, and you gave that um, example of the sunscreen coming off your body, like you just blew my mind. Like that's just something I hadn't even thought of. And you just, you do, you do have this thing, thought of, I'm going to just jump into the ocean and it's completely pure and I'm in this space and, you know, it's all beautiful and lovely and restorative um, and it's giving me something and making me feel a way, but I would, I just never thought about, yeah, what my body is doing to that space. So I was sitting there listening to you and I was like, oh my God, this is <laughs> incredible. I just changed my whole perspective. Yeah. About my own, like, um, yeah, sense of embodiment in spaces too. So and of course that translates to social and cultural encounter, right? right? It's also like the encounters that we have with other people and what like our behavior leaves traces on other people as well. Like if we're kind to someone, if we're cruel to someone, if we're inclusive or exclusive, you know, if we're racist, if we're sexist, if we're not, <laughs> those mm. things leave behind remnants. So we don't just take from encounters. We don't just take experiences. We also leave experiences with others. So like these are 
it translates in all these like quite material ways, but also in social and cultural ways as well, those ideas of embodiment. Yeah, definitely. And something that once you start thinking about, I think has such a power to drive behavioral change and drive this cultural impact. It's just, you know, that awareness and bring yourself to really understand yourself in those spaces, I think is so important. And maybe that's sort of what we're lacking a little bit in some of the spaces in sport. So hopefully your work can continue to change that and drive more and more impact and make the world a better place because your work absolutely has the power to do that. Mm, thanks, Casey. <laughs> I only wanted to ask you maybe just like one more question before we finish up, Beck. And I guess this is stuff that I sort of think about more broadly in my role as a woman in sport and sports academia and this kind of space when we bring it back to this whole conversation. And I was having a little bit of a chat on a previous podcast episode with Dr. Kim Toffoletti about this and just trying to highlight, I guess, the space that we occupy as academics in this broader movement to try and make sport better for women and non-binary folk in our space with either the work that we're doing or just being in the space and trying to make the space more diverse and intersectional. But what is something that you think you've observed maybe in your experiences in academia or that you would like to see change or a bit more of a focus of when it comes to women in sport academia or women who I guess maybe need to have their experiences um, like represented more in the sports uh, Mm -hmm. academic research that's been done as well? Well, I guess you mentioned Kim there, and I guess I would point to Kim as someone that I find really inspiring in doing exactly what we should be doing, which is listening and Mm. responding and like taking seriously people's um, work and their critiques and making space for them. And Kim is the kind of person who does what is the most inspiring thing in any, you know, women's sports space, which is make room for everyone and lift everyone up. And she never promotes herself over anyone else. She's so amazing. And she's always telling other people about the people she's met and promoting and inviting people and and stepping back and giving up opportunities for others. And so I really look at someone like Kim as someone who is just so inspiring and doing the kind of things that actually make meaningful change in space, you know. And so, yeah, I see her as quite a model for how how a lot of us can engage with things, which is to realise the limitations of what we are each able to do. And as a, you know, cisgendered, white, middle-class woman, academic, blah, blah, all the things, you know, there's lots of us in women's sport, like compared to, you know, relative. Yes. And so it is about realizing, well, this is a limitation to what I should be speaking about. And so how do I make space for someone else to then step forward? And Mm -hmm. and I think that, yeah, like, it's nice you mentioned Kim, because she's, she's always the person who comes to mind for me as someone who I just think is a, is a model of how to do that with, with grace and care and consideration at all times. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I mean, I've told Kim many times just how much she means to me from what she's been able to do for me in my career. And I definitely try to to model that for others as well. Because I think you're right. It's just about bringing more people along for the journey with us. And um, I think for a while, like even when I was starting out in this women in sports space, like I just did not have like a great understanding about the privilege that I had and, and how I needed to sort of really reconcile that and understand that my experiences were not the same as all women and it just sounds I sound so naive talking about it now but I was so naive at that stage because I think you just buy into this you know we're all here together let's you know we're all the same we're all women we're experiencing the same thing and like intersectionality was something that I'd not really 
recognized early on in my career and is something that I'm really trying to like I guess um be more more conscious of but also just sort of go back and reflect on times when like I should have you know, really stepped up to the plate and handed over the mic or, or given another opportunity but I I think I was just sort of conditioned by the patriarchy in sports. Like there's only this one spot and I've got to go for it and I've got to be competitive and, and all that sort of stuff. And I don't mind talking about that now because I know it's not the, the best quality, but, you know, it is something that I definitely recognize that like I was that person. And I don't... That's what patriarchy does. That's what makes right. it cool. It's like in yeah, competition with other women or other people, right? Because it's not mm. about women. And that's why I find women's sports, as a space so inspiring because women's sport is having debates about who gets included, right? It's mm-hmm. like, it is a space that's about opening up to be more inclusive of more people who don't just fit the category woman in this really clear, like defined way, the way men's sport is still completely constrained by or lots of like men's sports are like, you look at the difference between let's use the AFL, like the AFL men's where they're kind of cookie cutter guys. And then you look at the women's and it's really a range of women mm-hmm. having very interesting conversations about the complexity, the gender politics of that sport. And so yeah. it's like, I like women's sport for that because it's like, they're just, it's always being pushed to be more open, which in some ways I know can be really frustrating for a lot of women in sport, but actually that's awesome and incredible. Like, we don't want to be men's sport where, where there's this closed down category of like all the same people who with mm-hmm. all the same bodies who do all the same things. Like women's sport can be something else. And it's, um, it's really cool. It's really cool. And I was really inspired watching Serena. Um, I really love Serena. And when she finished and she said, there's no Serena without Venus. Mm. Oh, that was like, yeah. I, I cried. <laughs> because <laughs> like, Venus fought so many battles so that other women, you know, can have space. And she she's yeah. amazing. And that's what I love looking at in women's sport. And that's what and I think in women's sporting academia, we talk a lot about who came before us. And feminism has a really strong practice of citation, mm-hmm. of like recognizing where who does your work build on? You know, it didn't just emerge fully, you didn't just have a thought. <laughs> it's yeah. unique. Like it builds on stuff. And so I really like in our space that we hold each other accountable to that practice, I think. Mm-hmm. And and push us and we get pushed to be more open about who we're citing, you know. And there's more, there's a lot of accountability to that, I think, and who we're including. So yeah, I find it a really exciting space to work in. Yeah, me too. I think you've just summed that up so nicely and in a way that I think I've sort of thought but didn't really know how to articulate. So thank you for giving me that beautiful gift back. (laughs) I think I could just like ramble something off to you and you would just synthesize it, just give it back to me so beautifully. (laughs) I need to talk to you more often. (laughs) But I don't want to take up much more of your time though, because I know you are busy, you're working on so many things and you're doing a lot. So I just really, again, appreciate your time and coming to share your journey, your work, your amazing expertise and just your beautiful self with us and the Siren listeners. So thank you for coming on the show. Um, Where can people find you and find your work? and, And is there anything that you want to share that we can read, listen to, give us all the things? Yeah, so I pretty much aggregate everything on movingoceans.com and that's where my current work is. I have a backlog of work around like critique of women's kind of surfing in particular, but more broadly on an old blog called Making Friends with the Neighbours, 
www.blogspot.com and I don't publish there much anymore but it's got a lot of their essays and things that I've written about women's sport um which seem to still get picked up sometimes and published in other places so um that might be interesting if you wanted to look at more stuff around women's sport but yeah the stuff I'm putting out now is on movingoceans.com yeah and you can contact me through there if you wanted to get in touch as well Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Rebecca Olive. And of course, you can follow Siren at Siren underscore sport on Twitter and hit up our website, sirensport.com.au. And we'll see you next time for another Siren Sport podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>